you get up and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. The world is a college of corporations inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. And I have chosen you to preach this evangel. Welcome fellow plebs. My name is Sean and this is Tribunus Plebis. Okay, what I want to talk about today are certain aspects of the stimulus bills which have been getting passed through Congress lately. Uh, obviously due to the COVID crisis here in America. Uh, the first thing I want to address is that I think many of us have a pretty big misconception of what exactly some parts of, the, of these bills are doing. In particular, I think that the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, is at the top of that list. Regarding PPP, we have, I think, an incorrect notion of exactly what this uh, program was supposed to do. We have it in our heads that this was like a, a small business bailout that was, you know, intended for small businesses, like almost entirely. Because of that, we got angry when we saw large businesses receive these funds. I think that both of these notions are not quite correct. Uh, the Paycheck Protection Program is just what its name implies. It's a program to protect paychecks. It was supposed to be used to pay employees, even if they had hours cut or even if they would not have been working otherwise. That is literally what was supposed to happen with this money. 75% of it, of the money from all of these loans, were supposed to be used for payroll. And this is why I think we are a little mistaken with our larger criticisms of this program and how it was implemented. Um, additionally, we need to question really hard why this PPP provision existed in the first place. Because how it functions, what it basically is, is just a crappy version of unemployment which for some reason is being funneled through small businesses to the workers. You know, why not just put that cash into regular unemployment, which is just a better solution all around? Even small and large businesses realize this. The second round of PPP still has something like 30 to 40% of the funds sitting around waiting unclaimed. Large employers, after they took the money, were shamed into not taking it, and many of them gave it back. And unfortunately, this hurts their lowest level employees the most. And small businesses and those who work in small businesses, the employees, they have both realized that unemployment is just the better option. And businesses um, have realized that taking these loans, because 75% of it has to go to employees and they can't use the money for anything else, it just isn't worth it. So they've shut down. And the employees, they would just rather not work, right? If they're getting 20 hours a week, 15 hours a week at some uh, small business, it's just better to be unemployed at this point. You know, I mean, I mean, that's obviously not good, but if you're not getting health insurance, you're not getting 40 hours a week, you're better off just selfishly. You're better off just being unemployed right now. So what I'm saying is go ahead and criticize whether or not this was the best way to help workers. I think that's fair. And go ahead and criticize particular companies who maybe took this money, but maybe they didn't need it. But we have to be careful because this money was intended to go to wage workers, people like us, and our criticisms may have harmed people. And I was one of those people who were yelling about this before I kind of thought about it and uh, I think realized what, what was going on here. 
And I, I really do believe that I'm correct on that part, uh, at least as far as I can tell. Okay, so going forward, we are going to primarily focus on um, the first iteration of the PPP and the new HEROES Act, which was just recently passed. The original PPP contained $350 billion, of which three quarters of it would have gone to wage workers. And the other 25%, uh, if I remember correctly, it was it could be used for things like fixed costs. I believe it maybe could have used for rent, um, some bit like utility bills, but not a whole lot else other than that. So that fund, it ran out in just 14 days. Partly, because huge amounts of money went to massive corporations. We don't want to ignore that. And it went to businesses controlled by very wealthy people. Don't want to ignore that either. And it did not go to businesses that are truly small or truly in need. And again, I want to focus on the in need part here. That a large company got some money which was used to pay their employees is not a terrible thing on its face. So long as the money went to the most needy first. We might pause here for a second and think about the question that jumps into like my head already. Why was there no urgency to actually bail out or save truly small businesses? The PPP essentially just used small businesses as a sort of middleman to get money to employees. But unemployment does that same thing, except it does it better. Why not actually focus on saving the businesses? Well, my conspiratorial side would suggest that perhaps big business did not want that competition to exist anymore. They would prefer that they fail or just to simply buy them out on the cheap as soon as they can. But that's probably a different subject for another podcast. Back to the fund itself. The fund was just not big enough to do what it was designed to do. But we're going to set that aside for now as well. The primary reason why national chains and other giant profitable businesses were so able to take advantage of these funds is because of the loopholes which were purposefully built into them. These loopholes, and again, calling them loopholes is insanely generous, I think. Perhaps backdoors might be more appropriate since they were absolutely intentional. Allowed these megacorps to claim they were eligible for funds if they had locations with small amounts of employees. For instance, a hotel chain could claim to be a small business because they have only 20 employees at any particular hotel. Of course, the fact that the hotel chain was a massive multinational business that was profitable didn't really factor into anything. Now, I just want to take a pause here once again and risk beating a dead horse. The fact that a large corporation got PPP money is not, strictly speaking, terrible. This angle of attack might not be wholly wrong, but it, I think it is substantially wrong. Hotels have maids, Fast food chains have fry cooks, and grocery stores have shelf stockers, all of whom need paychecks. And whether or not a giant corporation deserves to get any money at all is kind of irrelevant, because its workers, and especially its low-level workers, definitely need money. Okay, after all that, there was a huge issue with the PPP program. We need to look at how the money was distributed via banks and why it was done that way. The reason why banks were used is because the Treasury Department, headed by a certain clown prince named Steve Mnuchin, pushed for it and got it written into the bill. The claim they made was that the IRS or any other governmental agency was simply not built to handle and distribute money in this way. But banks are. And if you put on real dark sunglasses and squint real hard and don't look any deeper, maybe you could force yourself to believe this reasoning. But let's take a second look at Steve Mnuchin. 
the man Donald Trump chose to head the Treasury Department and one of the financial horsemen of the apocalypse. He went to Yale and then right to Goldman Sachs, where he spent 17 years. That's already pretty much all you need to know about the guy, but we'll, we'll, we'll push on. From there, he found and ran some hedge funds. Again, this alone is like three strikes against him. Then there was his time on the board of Sears, where he helped strip that once proud company of all of its assets before casting it to the trash heap as a dried, bankrupt husk. What else was there? Oh, he also bought a failed bank, gave it a new name, and then reinvigorated it, quote-unquote, via sketchy dealings like illegal foreclosures before selling it to a holding company. He got rich in what is basically the shadiest, most immoral, and repugnant way possible. And now, he's our Secretary of the Treasury. Yep, just in case anyone out there needed extra proof that the crooks and goons run the country, there it is. Trump out there just letting more swamp monsters into the swamp like it's not even a big deal. As secretary, Mnuchin supported Trump's atrocious and destructive tax breaks for corporations and is even now fighting for more of them. He also supports deregulation of the financial industry. Yup, he is an amoral shitbag, not fit to shine shoes for nickels on a street corner. Okay, I went on about Mnuchin a bit longer than really was necessary, but that was only to show you that he really is an awful person. So we have this guy who made his bones riding the Ivy League to high finance monorail so that he could get rich by ripping off working people, destroying companies from the boardroom, and working in and around Wall Street and banking. And he's the one advocating to give money to banks. And people listened. And they let the banks handle the money. Yeah, we all know where this is going, I think. So what did the banks do? They did exactly what you think they did. They helped big corporations before they helped those who truly needed it. Just in the first phase of PPP loans, about $350 billion, banks made $10 billion in fees right off the top. $10 billion in two weeks. So we can stop wondering right now why a longtime banker and financial clown pushed for this move to banks. So the government is paying banks a fee for each loan it gives out. And this might not sound despicable on its face, as I'm sure people would ask something like, well, shouldn't banks get something for doing this work? And you know what? Sure. Let's all just agree that fees are fine in general. We can even agree that these particular fees were reasonable and fair. We can agree to all of that as we look at what happened. What happened was, banks did not distribute these loans in a first-come, first-served manner as they were supposed to. They did not distribute the money to those most in need either. Hell, they didn't even use a lottery or other sort of random selection. Nope, they just took all of the applications, sorted through them, and put all of their best customers, and most importantly, the loans with the highest fees attached to them, right on top of the stack. These banks were very explicitly supposed to deal with loans on a first-come, first-served basis. This is still not exactly fair, as giant firms have literally hundreds or thousands of lawyers and economists and accountants and general paper pushers housed in divisions of the company that are specifically dedicated to just this sort of action, huge firms have literal, direct access to lawmakers' offices and cell phones as well, not just a public switchboard number listed on their websites like the rest of us have, and the calls flow in both directions. Plus, they have further teams of lawyers and accountants who can very quickly and efficiently decipher legalese and best position their paperwork, all of it flawlessly filled out and filed to be approved. At J.P. Morgan, as an example, almost all of the bank's commercial and private banking clients got their PPP loans approved 
while only about 18,000 out of more than 300,000 applicants who bank through retail banks, those are the bank branches us normies are familiar with, got a loan. What is that? That's like less than 5%, I think. I'm not great at math, but that seems oddly low. To go even further, J.P. Morgan literally assigned caseworkers to literally walk favored clients, those with more than $10 million in banked assets, through the PPP process, and they held their hands to make sure that they got their loans. They were like some sort of financial corporate Sherpas dragging rich assholes to the top of Everest while the poor suffered hypoxia and fell by the wayside. While all of this is going on, actual small business owners, you know, the family who owns a tropical fish business on Main Street in your downtown, the very people who actually really truly needed a bailout, they were left to leave their contact info on a website and pray for a call back. So we basically know that the banking industry just paid Mnuchin and the Senate to pass this money through them and make themselves and their well-off clients even more wealthy. They might as well have erected billboards telling us it happened. And it is as ingenious and evil as it is classic and timeless in this country. Want to get rich? Purchase a senator. It's the American way. Now, how does the government fuck us again? How do they top that bullshit we just talked about? First, let me dial us back for a second, and I just want to think about how this corruption occurs. Corruption, as we normally think about it, one person paying somebody else directly for specific actions, like an oil company handing a congressman $100,000 in a bag to vote no on a regulatory bill, a true quid pro quo situation, it just doesn't happen anymore. Not really. That sort of corruption, a cartoon bag with a dollar sign painted on it dropped onto a desk, that is almost entirely anachronistic right now. Today, corruption is far more subtle, though just as real. Even more strangely, it's even more out in the open. Today's corruption is hints, precedents, winks, and nods. Insinuation and unspoken understandings rule the day. Nobody ever directly says to a senator that they will get a cushy, obnoxiously high-paid seat on the board of a giant multinational pharmaceutical behemoth. Instead, there is precedence. The senators see what happened to other senators who played along with the pharma industry. And then they are left with a wink in their own imaginations. Everybody understands what is never explicitly stated. You play the game with a senator, and we will take care of you once you leave the government. And this sort of corruption, it happens at all levels of government, right from interns on up to congressmen and even cabinet secretaries. You influence votes, and we will take care of you. Vote with us, and we will take care of you. Now, of course, there is also a dark side to all of this. If you don't vote with them, they will bury you. If you don't use your influence in their favor, they will defund you, or they will simply just fund your opponent. And what is the mechanism for all of these shenanigans? It's mostly lobbyists. The lobbyists are the bagmen. They're the lubricant which streamlines, justifies, and normalizes corruption. Now, why bring all of this up? Why prattle on about corruption in the PPP system and lobbyists more broadly? Well, it's all leading us to a particular point in the new bill announced by Nancy Pelosi. And if anybody is to be believed, she was the singular force behind this entire bill. One of the points that the Speaker of the House felt compelled to include in this mostly bad bill was something I find particularly unsettling. There is a portion of the bill which gives a bailout to lobbyists in the form of a tax break. Now, the bill itself did contain some good things for regular people. Let's throw that out there so we aren't all negative, okay? But real, substantive, lasting help for the most desperate? Hell no. Are you kidding? We don't host or attend $200,000 plate dinners, chill out in wine caves, 
or run super packs for these monsters. Of course we won't get any real help. But help for the bagmen? Help for the lobbyists? Yes, of course. They don't have to ask twice. So let's just think about what is going on here for a moment. The House of Representatives just gave a bailout to the people who pay them bribes. That's the simple, plain truth of it. And at the cost of what? Universal basic income? No. But here's $1,200 one time. Job guarantees? Nope. Go drive for Uber. Easier access to safety net programs? Nope. You'll just end up a fucking leech. Expanding Medicare to cover more people? Oh, hell no. And on this last point, expanding Medicare, that is far, far cheaper than any other solution for healthcare, as tens of millions of people lose their work-provided insurance. And what is Pelosi's big plan to deal with this? Well, she wants to subsidize COBRA. COBRA is the single most expensive insurance program in the history of the universe. COBRA is brutally expensive, and very few people who actually need it can actually afford it. So Pelosi wants to take the most expensive route, a route which funnels immense amounts of money to, guess who? Insurance companies. So she wants to spend way more money, get way shittier results, and she wants to subsidize insurance companies. All because insurance, healthcare, and pharma companies fund political campaigns and own these cowards. Oh, and then they bail out the motherfuckers who bribe them all, too. Here's another thing to ponder. Congress refuses to put in place what are called automatic stabilizers into any of these stimulus packages, which is why they need to keep rewriting and passing legislation. Automatic stabilizers would alleviate much of this dog and pony show. Basically, what these stabilizers would do is tie things like stimulus checks to measures of economic growth, unemployment, and similar markers. These programs would automatically continue and adjust as needed rather than require a rock fight in Congress to get it passed every other month. But fuck those people who have no paycheck through no fault of their own, right? Let those people struggle through the Byzantine bureaucracy and get checks two months too late to not get evicted. At least the private equity fund didn't lose a point off their stock valuation. They do not care about poor people. That's really the nuts and bolts of it, I guess. They despise us. These people had an opportunity to do good, to effect change. If anyone had doubts that these people really are evil before this crisis, please cast them aside right now. Speaking of the crisis, I have an additional few thoughts here, but don't worry, we will spin back to Pelosi and Congress a little bit later. Now, this COVID-19 crisis has devastated America in various ways. The most salient way, obviously, being the widespread sickness and death it has caused. As I record this, COVID deaths in the United States are about to surpass 90,000 human lives lost. And I wanted to acknowledge that before I press on. It is truly heartbreaking to me whenever this number rises, and it is just as heartbreaking when I hear stories from the numerous doctors and nurses that my wife and I know personally. All that being said, I'm about to talk about this crisis in a somewhat dispassionate and political manner. So I hope that you'll understand that this does not mean that I don't care about those we've lost, are losing, and will continue to lose, let alone those who are permanently harmed by this thing or just suffer through a brutal sickness before recovering. The COVID-19 crisis has exposed something else as well. Actually, it has exposed several things. It has exposed the systemic weaknesses of our deeply fissured workplaces, it has shown the rank immorality of capital itself. It has shined a brutal, unforgiving spotlight on the now hopefully obvious inadequacies of our mostly private, for-profit health insurance and healthcare systems. 
It has also highlighted the weak posture of American citizens when they face power and the abject weakness of the current U.S. labor movement and unions. As we look at all of this, we need to understand something that the political right understand all too well, that a crisis can provide a moment where real change can occur. This change can be either good or for evil. It can be for the status quo or for a revolution. It can be incremental or radical. It can be virtually nothing or barely anything at all. But the opportunity exists and it can be used. 9-11 is a great example. After the terrorist attacks, the ideologically driven conservative politicians used that crisis to make sweeping changes. They used it as a pretext to start wars, which, if you believe the standard story, began as righteous retaliation before grinding into quagmire. Regardless of whether you believe that initial narrative or not, those wars soon became nothing more than a resource-driven occupations in short order, whether or not they began that way. And then there was the passing of the Patriot Act, one of the most un-American bills ever passed. This was followed, of course, by the illegal, unjustified war in Iraq. This is where the Bush administration leveraged the fear and anger of the U.S. populace and manipulated them and most of the Western world as they lied about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq to generate popular support to send troops to that country. Now again, I'm going to set aside the conspiracy theories and all that around this and work off the notion that the sort of mainstream narrative is more or less accurate. The towers fell in New York, a plane slammed into the Pentagon, and United Flight 93 crashed in Pennsylvania and America was terrified and angry. We had a crisis in this country, and there was a response. Before we continue, let me read a quote from all-time worst person contender, Milton Friedman. He said, quote, There is enormous inertia, a tyranny of the status quo, in private and especially governmental arrangements. Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. End quote. Another terrible person, politician Rahm Emanuel, paraphrased Friedman in a more succinct way when he said, quote, You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that is an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. End quote. The key things here that they both got right were that crises can accelerate change and the part about ideas lying around. When 9-11 happened, the neocons had, well, they had ideas lying around. Ideas like spying on citizens is okay. Making corporations like Halliburton insanely rich is good. Starting wars with mineral and resource-rich countries leveraging racial and religious animosity, solidifying hierarchical power structures, legitimating extrajudicial confinement, torture, and murder, you know, all the fun stuff. And as soon as the initial shock of 9-11 wore off, those ideas began getting implemented. Okay, that's all very depressing. I get it. So to flip this concept of crises and change to a more positive note, we're going to talk about two other, well, two other really bad situations the Great Depression, and World War II. Both of these events were obviously terrible, but they did help instill a stronger labor sector and labor organization in the United States. And this happened mostly because these ideas had been lingering and lying around, as Friedman put it, for decades. The Great Depression and the resulting deprivations forced the working class and poor to band together and to fight back against the exploitations of capital interests. 
This collectivizing, militarism, and general solidarity had not sprung up overnight out of whole cloth. The ideas had been lying around, and the crisis the world experienced caused desperate workers to once again recognize these ideas. They saw the power they contained and how they would be able to act on and use them. Those foundational principles that the workers rediscovered had been laid down over the previous century all across the country, union by union, factory by factory, mine by mine, and even county by county. A crisis occurred, and those ideas which had been laying around, ideas like solidarity, strikes, eight-hour workdays, overtime, weekends, pensions, and democracy in the workplace amongst a slew of others, began to take root and bloom, not just in a spot here and there, but all over the country. And now we have a current crisis, the COVID crisis, or to be more precise for what we are talking about here, an economic and capital crisis. And the powers that be, the corporations, the wealthy, the politically powerful, those monsters are already on this. They have had their own ideas laying around, things like making the corporate overlords more wealthy, making them more powerful, right on down to bailing out the men and women who actually carry the bribes from corporations to Capitol Hill. Oh, lest we forget they are trying to force millions of workers back into the meat grinder of likely unsafe jobs and work conditions. Not because they want the best for workers, but because they worship a line on a graph and demand that it always rise. Their first instinct was to bail out landlords, not renters. And when I talk about landlords here, I'm not talking about Gus down the street who owns a duplex or even one of my friends who owns an apartment building. I'm talking about the Carlisle Group or KKR or Blackstone, or any of the other massive private equity firms who own or control every real estate holding company you can think of. Their second instinct is to cape incessantly for Raytheon and others like Raytheon, while at the same time ignoring or slurring working class people all over the world. They have their ideas, and we have ours, and we need to start fighting against theirs and building on our own. Already we see signs of this buildup. Amazon and Walmart have seen strikes happening all across the country. These strikes have been primarily driven by safety and wage. And this is all on top of a resurgent year for labor movements in general, especially amongst teachers and nurses. It is especially sick for these politicians, CEOs, and apologists for the rich to talk about how minimum wage workers are quote-unquote essential and quote-unquote heroes. Oh, and screw Pelosi for calling her bill heroes in their honor too, by the way. So they call them essential and heroes and then send them into unnecessary danger. All because it is more profitable than protecting them properly. What kind of a sick world do we live in when nurses have to fight, strike, have sick outs, and beg for basic protective equipment? And when these minimum wage and gig job folks go to work every day, and they do go to work every day, they don't do it because they are heroes or because they are brave. They do it because they get paid so little and work in places so morally bankrupt that they can't miss more than a day or two without missing a meal or rent or even being fired. Even as I type this, Fox News personalities are pushing for the economy to reopen. Yet Fox News itself is voluntarily extending their work at home time frame. These media cretins want you to go to work, not themselves. They want you to risk yourself for them, the wealthy. They don't want to go to work. Heaven forbid somebody with a seven-figure salary and a show that brings in tens of millions of dollars were to get sick. But yeah, you go to work so that their stock holdings can go up a tick or two. Thank you. And here's another question. Do you want to know what was left on the cutting room floor so that Pelosi could get a lobbyist bailout and put some means testing on a meager stimulus check? The biggest single thing was probably a full paycheck guarantee. 
The full paycheck guarantee covered up to $90,000 per year. This was perhaps the most ambitious, but also the most efficacious idea anyone had to help those in need. After all, when somebody is struggling because they have no money in their pockets, then the best way to fix that is to, now just wait for this a second, get money in their pockets. When people don't have money, the best thing that they can do is get money. This isn't rocket science. And for anyone screaming about the cost of such a plan, Moody's estimates that the cost of such a program for six months, a full half a year, would actually cost less than the two rounds of PPP that we talked about earlier. It would have lasted longer, helped more people who truly needed it, and been cheaper. And if you remember how we talked about the banks raking in billions of dollars and how they favored their biggest clients all because of corruption in the Trump cabinet, well, this Paycheck Guarantee Act, it would have shifted the processing back to the IRS and clipped $10 billion right off the cost side of that ledger. In the end, the wealthy will always get theirs, and they will prevent us from getting anything more than subsistence if they can. They will go on late-night TV and browse both of their $30,000 refrigerators and then joke about how one of their freezer drawers is stuffed with nothing but expensive ice cream. Meanwhile, at the exact same time, the viewers watching this shit show are struggling to find toilet paper, diapers, and canned goods. Jesus Christ, Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water. So we have a crisis and we have ideas. What do we do now? Well, we definitely do not fight to go back to the pre-quarantine normal. That old normal can no longer be good enough. That old normal was rapidly widening wealth gaps, a hollowing of the middle class, and an acceleration into some sort of new feudalistic paradigm. We need to create a new labor movement, not just organize the same way as individual bargaining units here and there. Labor is most powerful when united across sectors, so let's do that. For example, a linen factory can organize around the safety or lack thereof of a motorized cutting machine. An Uber driver, though, cannot really use that to help themselves. But back in the day, broader concepts like an eight-hour workday, overtime after 40, and weekends were all concepts that cut across sectors, industries, and geographic locations. And that broad movement helped push those things across the finish line. So what can we organize around in this new movement? We could start with simply supporting labor, take part in strikes, support strikes of other workers, don't cross picket lines, etc., but really, we need to organize against the power of capital itself. Corporate giants like Amazon or Walmart, or even prisons, can exert immense monopolistic and monopsonistic pressures on global and local economies and workforces. They even feed off of and destroy the lives of their own workers and the surrounding communities. Then we have the tech giants. Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook, and Microsoft. They own pretty much everything of note at this point. Oh, and they're tracking us like animals as well. Now, as if that enemy list is not long enough, we have the private equity assholes as well, like the well-named Cerberus and the others like Carlyle and KKR I mentioned before. I literally do not have time to list everything that Cerberus either controls or owns. The list is literally staggering when you begin to read it. It's kind of like when you are watching some sort of sci-fi dystopian movie and there is this megacorp that owns and controls everything. And maybe we think like, ah, LOL, there's no way, free markets, etc. But private equity and tech are those evil megacorps, even if we don't quite clearly see it yet. So those are our enemies. This is who we must battle in the coming labor fights. Yes, it is daunting, but we need to identify and organize around broader goals which bridge industries. Things like the fight for 15, 
which honestly should probably be closer to 20 by now because the fight has dragged on so long. Even some seemingly radical ideas like maybe a four-day work week or more working from home. How about worker representation on corporate boards, worker councils, co-determination, and democracy in the workplace all cut across various professions and sectors? In the end, possible concepts are many and varied. Let's find and use them. Just as an example, perhaps a single unit of machinists, even when they're organized within a corporate giant like Raytheon, cannot drive us towards something like worker representation on corporate boards. But imagine how far hundreds or thousands of union contract negotiations all across the nation would go to seeing this idea come to fruition if they made it part of their demands. When union movements across all sectors are unified in these broad goals, while also working towards their own specific requirements, the entire movement can exert immense pressure. Not only could we achieve these broad goals and raise wages, benefits, and working conditions, but we could also accelerate things like disinvestment in companies that dump chemicals into our water, that dig up and burn fossil fuels, and even disinvest from things like child labor. In the end, we have the strength. We know how essential we actually are as workers now. The COVID crisis has highlighted that and shown us our muscles. There are tens of millions of us and hundreds, maybe thousands of them. Imagine what we could do if we worked together instead of letting them divide us. We have a crisis. We have ideas. The evil of this world has not and will not sit this one out. Neither should we. And that, my friends, is the end of episode two of the Tribunus Plebis podcast. And I just wanted to take a moment to thank everybody who listened to the first episode and this episode. And, uh, you know, a lot of you reached out personally with uh, kind thoughts and words, and it, that was awesome. It really, uh, it felt great. And I read the reviews and the ratings on iTunes, and that was awesome as well. And I just really, you know, I just really appreciate you guys. And uh, thank you for listening. And I'll see you again for episode three.